Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. It's Friday, March 13th. This week in the news, Sequoia returns an investment for the first time in its 48-year history. Airbnb runs into a wall, and a VC talks about how his firm is navigating today's challenging investment climate. Connie, you wrote a very interesting piece about Sequoia. Tell us about it. So this is a story about conflicts of interest, but it's still unusual. So Sequoia, interestingly, is a huge stakeholder in the payments unicorn stripe. And it has been for years. More recently, this past fall, it got involved with another payments infrastructure company called Phoenix. And according to Sequoia, it didn't see these two as competing companies straight away. Apparently, after it wrote its check for $21 million, leading a, I think, $35 million Series B round, it started thinking otherwise. And in fact, within a short period of time, I think maybe the investment was done, let's say in November, it decided to just hand over its board seat, its information rights, its share, and its full investment. So basically, this means it's a gift to Phoenix, a giant, I'm sorry, here's $21 million. So this is what Sequoia is saying. I have to say I'm a bit skeptical that it's quite so simple. My broad theory is that Stripe wasn't so excited about this investment. Sequoia is its biggest shareholder. Stripe, meanwhile, represents a huge holding for Sequoia. The company's worth tens of billions of dollars at this point. So it's kind of confusing to me. I'm not sure how they wouldn't have talked to Stripe during the due diligence process. I asked Stripe about this. I asked Sequoia about this just to sort of better understand how this uh, mix-up could have happened. And no one had much to say about it. I did hear from a reader who I thought had the most plausible scenario, which is that registered investment advisors typically have a clause that allows companies to revoke what's called major investor status for investors that own 10% or more of a competing business. So why does this matter? Well, I guess being a major investor confers benefits like you get a board member seat, uh, you've got, you know, sort of like a board observership, pro rata rights, information rights. So it's possible that Stripe would have invoked this clause to remove Sequoia from its board had Sequoia maintained this relationship with Phoenix. Now, I should be clear, this is complete speculation, as this reader himself said, I did not run this by Stripe. I did, as I said, talk to Stripe earlier this week to see if they would give me any insights into the situation, and they politely declined. But I thought it was an interesting possibility. Yeah, it's certainly a strange situation. You'd think that the first call that Sequoia would make would be to Stripe to see what they thought of Phoenix. And it's very hard, as you say, to imagine that they didn't talk to Stripe. Also, it's very odd that they decided to simply give away the money and not take anything in return. If I were a limited partner, of course, I wouldn't complain because I value my position as an LP in Sequoia's funds, but I would be a little bit curious why they just gave away $21 million. It really does seem, as you say, that Stripe put the hammer down and said, Sequoia, you have to get out of this deal and we don't want you to have any association or any benefit from this whatsoever. Bad Sequoia, bad. 
Well, in fairness to Sequoia, I feel like we should include a, a statement on behalf of the partner who led the deal, Pat Grady, which reads, quote, while we'd previously concluded that Phoenix was not a direct competitor to any existing portfolio companies, after making the investment, we came across a variety of small data points that collectively painted a different picture of the market. The decision had nothing to do with Phoenix and everything to do with Sequoia's desire to honor our commitments. So that's that. You notice that he didn't say it didn't have anything to do with Stripe. <laughs> that's that's true. Of course, from there, the news this week just seemed to get much, much worse. I think one unfolding story that's caught everyone's attention centers on Airbnb, the short-term rental giant that was expected to go public this year and whose offering has been probably the most anticipated for years other than perhaps Uber and Lyft. One has to wonder how much COVID-19 is going to ultimately set it back. Bloomberg reported back in December that after looking at Airbnb's fourth quarter financials, you know, keeping in mind that the company is still private, it found that its revenue had leaped 32% partly thanks to marketing spend, but also because of all that marketing spend, its earnings plunged 92.3%. So that was not good. Now, of course, its service is tanking in major cities worldwide because of the coronavirus pandemic. In fact, according to a story in the journal yesterday, in Beijing from March 1st to March 7th, there was 1,600 bookings. That's down 96% from the more than 40,000 bookings made in one of the first weeks in January. And you see this pattern playing out everywhere the coronavirus has taken hold, which is, of course, everywhere now. Yeah, Airbnb is valued at $31 billion. And on Thursday, the company referred reporters to a September 2019 statement about its plans to go public in 2020. So it's not backing down from those plans. The journal says that the company's under immense pressure from employees to list before their stock options start expiring this year. So Airbnb couldn't be in a more difficult position right now. We'll have to wait and see, but I certainly don't envy the CEO, Brian Chesky, his position right now. Of course, there's a lot of unknowns in the world. In fact, it's interesting. I've, I've heard from a lot of readers over the last couple of days who are really hungering for more insights into how this impacts the world of startups and VCs, which, of course, I understand their concern. Um, it seems really that it's very sort of TBD. I talked yesterday with longtime VC Ravi Viswanathan about what he's seeing. Uh, he's a late stage investor who founded New View Capital, a firm that spun out of New Enterprise Associates a couple of years ago with um, 31 of NEA's older companies. And he's been sort of adding to that portfolio. And we just talked about what he's been seeing in his sort of neck of the woods, again, being later stage investing. And he noted that the scary thing about this downturn is that it's just not a financial one, but it's a global health crisis. And nobody has any idea how long it'll take or what the recovery will look like. I did ask if it meant if he was hitting the pause button on investments. And as with Mike Volpe of Index Ventures, whose interview is coming up, he said that really right now, this week, first and foremost, everyone's just very preoccupied as we are at our house uh, with making sure that families and employees and portfolio companies and their families, employees are safe right now. Yeah, I think that's probably a wise position to take with the press. But you have to think that these VCs are all sitting tight and not writing checks right now because the situation is so tumultuous. And also, a lot of their LPs are going sideways in their investments too. And so venture as a percentage of their overall allocation is going up. And that doesn't sit well with a lot of VCs either. It's a great point. If you didn't raise your fund already, it's going to get ugly out there really, really fast. The world is so upside down right now that even the late night talk shows canceled. Yeah, I mean, just when we need those guys the most, they desert us. It's horrible. 
And on that sad note, that's it for the news. Want to learn why top investors and business leaders leverage Affinity? Using patented technology, Affinity helps teams manage and grow their networks by unlocking introductions to decision makers and auto-populating pipelines to increase deal flow. In industries where success is contingent upon maintaining high-touch relationships, Affinity allows you to get deeper insights into your network and finally eliminate manual data entry. We're talking by phone today with top investor Mike Volpe of the global venture firm Index Ventures and earlier in his career, one of Cisco's top dealmakers. Mike, thanks for joining us. Let's jump into it. So you closed your last funds in 2018, $1.65 billion. Are you in the market again now? or We raise funds every three-ish years. So at some point, yeah, we'll be in the market again. Uh, not specifically at this point in time, but sooner or later, we'll raise another fund. I think we've been super consistent on kind of a three-year cadence at this point. I did want to ask you, sort of on a more broad note, just because the market has tanking so badly, do LPs tend to snap their checkbooks shut as soon as trouble hits? Or what has your experience been in the past? I mean, this is obviously sort of unprecedented in some ways. Most LPs, like at least in our experience, have been, uh, I'd say the majority of them have been with us for 20 years. And so whenever we raise, they want to put more in. And we've never had a situation where they've balked or had any issues. I think, thankfully, because our performance as a fund has returned nicely for them, they're always excited to give us more capital. So we haven't really seen a circumstance where LPs have drawn back. And in all candor, particularly venture funds that perform well and and, and sort of encompass a a broad spectrum of firms that have been performing well over the last number of uh, years. Everybody knows that a spot as an LP in those firms is very difficult to come by. Right. And if people have it, they will most definitely hang on to it because if they choose to back off, it's not guaranteed that they can get that spot back in. Right, right, right. In fact, um, I'm sure you probably have come across Chris Duvos at some point in your career, who is an LP, and he was working for a firm, I think, in 2003, and they said no to an Excel fund, the the fund that backed Facebook. So he was like, you never really want to get out of the game because it's very hard to get back in afterward. For sure. And not only that, but if you look at the last couple of down cycles that have happened of significance, whether it's the dot-com bust of 2000 or the 2007-8 financial crisis, actually some pretty amazing companies were born in uh, funds that were raised around that vintage. Mike, I also wanted to ask you, you led M&A at Cisco for a long time, I remember. You were there for 13 years, beginning in the mid-90s. How fast do tech giants pull back from shopping in your experience? Or is it also now sort of a time for them to be offering to buy companies at you know maybe a steep discount to where they would have been trading, so to speak, six to 12 months ago? I think it very much depends on the financial strength that the, the individual company has, and obviously the level of difficulty that, that they're facing at that point in time. But broadly speaking, I think they see it as a buying opportunity. So if you're a tech giant, you're cash rich, no risk in the business at all, 
and you're using, particularly if you're using cash to buy things, uh, which these days is very common, much more common than my time uh, at Cisco, I would say that it's a it's definitely a buyer's market. Hi, Mike. This is Alex. This is such a strange time. I know that as a VC, you take the long-term perspective, but the market has gone down 30% over the last uh, couple of weeks, and it's hit a lot of areas really hard, including Italy, where you grew up. And I'm just wondering what impact this has had on the way that you look at deals and how it's going to uh, affect your investment pace. First of all, I would say it's, it's obviously a very difficult time for everyone. There's a market issue, and we always talk about markets, but there's a health issue for people, and that's paramount. And I think that, that these times we probably think about that a little more than like, you know, oh my gosh, what am I going to do tomorrow with my investments? The business of venture is a very long-term one. The average holding period we have within our portfolio companies is probably eight years. And if you think about an investment that we made, even let's say last year, it's going to look really, really different seven years from now. So these kinds of moments of fluctuation for us as VCs, it shouldn't impact our thinking too much. I mean, they're unpleasant and you have to be thoughtful about how to manage through them. But from an investment perspective, we shouldn't really let it get too much in the scope of how we think about it. And, and we need to collectively really think in terms of the long term. So not surprisingly, we are looking at new investments right now, not, no faster or no slower than we did two months ago. Do you also take into account public market valuations when you're looking at uh, writing term sheets for some of your new investments? Without a doubt, public markets have some level of impact on the valuations that we think about for our companies. But in this case too, the public markets have moved so much in the last two, three weeks, as you said, it's down 30%. Obviously, you're not going to pay up more for a company, but how much you go down, if you go down at all, is really a case-by-case -case statement. Particularly if you're doing a Series A investment, the truth of the matter is whether the public markets have gone up or down don't have an enormous amount of bearing on what that what the valuation of that will be. That's much more driven by the competitive dynamics of that particular deal, how many VCs are chasing it and how excited they are about it. Are there certain buckets that you're investing in right now? Generally, we're you know we're a software investor and we look at all the opportunities. I think historically we have had a very strong consumer practice that looks at a lot of marketplace-like opportunities. We've done a variety of uh, branded uh, products as well. On the uh, more infrastructure side, we've always had a big uh, fintech practice. So no surprise, we got a lot of new fintech investments in the portfolio. We've had pretty significant practice in SaaS and productivity. You know, Companies like Slack and Dropbox and Pitch and so forth uh, are the types of things that we've looked at. Personally, I spend a lot of time in more of the data infrastructure universe. So that's databases and AI and machine learning and analytics and business intelligence type tools and so forth. These days, we've also done a fair bit in vertical SaaS, so vast SaaS uh, products that are very specific to, to various industries. So, you know, there's a, there's a reasonable range that we cover. I would say we're probably on balance much, much less active in the cryptocurrency side. We did some significant investments early on in 2014-ish, but this time around, we haven't been particularly active. We haven't done much in the hardware or the life sciences arena, but, you know, no surprises there. 
Index is pretty unique in the sense that it has very strong European foundation. And I'm just wondering how that informs how you guys look at deals. How does it make you different? How is it advantage? There's part of us that constantly feels like we're a little bit of an outsider and that we have a maybe a slightly different way of looking at things than everybody else does. Certainly, we're more accustomed to being proactive and finding opportunities rather than waiting for them to come to us. We're probably a little more comfortable with being contrarian than, you know, jumping on the same pile that everybody else is jumping on. You know, I'd give you an example like open source, which a lot of people felt free software. How can you build a business around it? And we, we jumped into that seven, eight years ago, and it's turned out to be a pretty fantastic investment area. Uh, we did fintech before fintech was cool. So I think that sort of outsider's mentality, in some sense, has helped us take a first principled look to, to new things. The other aspect of it is we do have a firm that's been around for 20 some years and you know is reasonably established in Europe. In the U.S., I think we have some level of empathy for the entrepreneurs that we back because when Danny, my partner, Danny Reimer, and I launched this U.S. activity, we were literally, the two of us were in a, a shared workspace with an office and, and an admin. And so it doesn't feel like that long ago that we were entrepreneurs ourselves. And you know, thankfully, things have really worked out for us over the last 10 years, but we still feel it. And I think I think that that sentiment of like, hey, we came from elsewhere. People didn't know us when we got started. It was a rough go in the beginning. Uh, that empathy that we hold for the entrepreneurs that we back is meaningful. And I think our entrepreneurs feel that. It sounds like you started the firm at a time when the VC business wasn't quite as hot as it has been lately. Do you think that VC became a little bit too hip, a little bit too fashionable? And do you think there's going to be some fallout as a result? No, actually, I don't think so. I have a different perspective on that. Venture capital was, for a long time, kind of a cottage industry, a craftsmanship industry, where you had small groups of experienced people that looked at investments. It was a very inefficient market where information was very siloed. But over time, the venture category has made a lot of money for a lot of people. And not surprisingly, a wave of professionalization has come to the venture business. And when I call professionalization, I mean, there's more data, there's more due diligence and information, there's more transparency in the terms that people are getting. There's a broader number of people who study the numbers and the facts and so on and so forth. And so I would characterize this more as a, an industry that's been kind of hidden and in the corner, mainstreaming. And so I don't think we're actually going to go back to the way venture capital was. And in large part, that's to the benefit of the entrepreneur who will be able to have a broader and more fair choice of venture capitalists that they choose. I think our industry is going to stay this way. Now, at the margin, you'll have periods of time, just like in the public markets where there'll be moments of euphoria and then there'll be moments of correction like we're experiencing today. And I think the venture industry will do the same. But the structure of it, the breadth of coverage, the level of information that's exchanged every day, the data-driven nature of what we do has changed forever. And I don't think we're going back. Mike, you know, another thing I wanted to talk to you about is board membership. You'd written a really great story for TechCrunch last month about this. First, I have to ask, are you on the board of 17 companies? 
I don't think that's quite right. I'm involved with 17. I'm probably in the low teens in terms of actual board membership. Okay. I just was looking at LinkedIn and I was sort of sort of amazed, um, including some very prominent companies, including Sonos. I'm just wondering how you think that role evolves, if at all, in a downturn. You know, Sequoia, a lot of people are sort of focused on these memos that it issues every, you know, decade or so to its employees to sort of, you know, watch the bottom line. I'm just wondering what kind of conversations are you having and do you feel like they need more handholding right now or just wondering what your thoughts are? I wouldn't call it handholding in any way. You know, CEOs are, are mature people. They know what they're doing. I think the benefit that a board member with some experience has is that you can provide perspective or context because, well, at least in my case, for example, I've been through two professionally, significant professionally, uh, professional downturns. And I, you sort of know what it's like before, you know what it's like in the middle of it, and you know what it's like after. And I think rather than saying, do this, which is never a very healthy dynamic between a board member and a CEO or a founder, I think what you can say is, hey, last time we went through this, these things happened and you, and you are faced with these choices. So uh, l- let's, let's work through a framework that will help you make some smart choices. Uh, and these may be smart choices about the level of investment that you're making. It may be smart choices about target markets, about um, spending. But I think a good member's job, board member's job is to help provide context and a framework and then let the smart CEOs make their own decisions. One of the things that you know I find fascinating about the way the venture industry is responding to this current situation is everyone is issuing declarative memos of make sure you open the front door with your elbow and not your hand. And I just don't think that CEOs should be treated like six-year-olds. They should be provided with some guidance and thoughtfulness. And especially important is that the long-term nature of your guidance, which is to say, let's think about two years from now, where do you want to be? What is the course of action that you need to take to be in that place two years from now, rather than you know saying, make sure that every time you have a meeting, you use a bottle of Purell. What I really liked about that piece was the way that you called out some other board members that had a big influence on you and helped shape how you looked at companies. But if I could just ask you to blow your own horn a little bit. Can you give us an example of a contribution that you made to a board or a decision that you helped a CEO with that was particularly consequential? I won't blow my own horn, but I'll give you an example of the of sort of the transfer learning that board members can help with. One of my favorite younger companies right now is a company called Kong. They make open source software that makes API gateways, and they're growing fabulously. Kong was a different company before. It's called Mashape, and they've been running for three or four years, and things were not going well. They, they had months of runway left, and the business really wasn't working. And it was basically an API marketplace. I won't go into the details of it, but uh, it was just sort of struggling. And uh, I recall a board meeting where you know I sat down with the founders and I had learned a big lesson from what the folks at Docker had done. At the time, you know, Docker's predecessor was a different company. I forget it was called Cloud, Cloud.net or Cloud.something or other. And they were a business uh, that was hosting services and they were not doing well. And they discovered that they had a piece of software inside that business called Docker, which they open source. And it had this huge transformative effect on the business. And so as we were going through options on the business, 
I asked the question of the founders. I said, guys, you know, you've built this service, this marketplace for four years now. Are there any special pieces of software that you think you guys have built that the world would benefit if it was out there and open sourced? And, you know, they came back and said, you know, it's funny because because we designed our system to be a super high performance, high velocity API system. We've built this API gateway that we use ourselves called Kong. It's internally codenamed Kong. And I think if, if the world had that product, that would be pretty powerful. That's sort of our crown jewels. So I said, look, you know, I've seen this kind of thing before. Have you thought about open sourcing that and just putting it out there and see if you can build some momentum? And initially they were like, well, it's our crown jewels. I was like, well, what do you got to lose? This business is struggling anyway. You, can go to, you might go out of business. So they decided to open source it. And lo and behold, that open source product, Kong, took off incredibly well millions upon millions of downloads. And now it's become the most popular API gateway in the market. And so I think the collective win that we had as a board and as a management team was, I had seen something that had worked elsewhere at another stage in my career. I asked the question as to whether there was a similar situation, an analog, if you will, in their business. They were smart enough to say, yeah, we've got something. And, you know, it's sort of a last ditch effort, if you will. They tried it and it worked. I'm not sure that any one of us would have, you know, I couldn't have told them what they should do. They probably wouldn't have figured out without a few smart questions. But I think that that's a board working well. That's when a board member sort of just simply asks questions based on their experience and allows management to figure out a pathway that they'd self-discover, right? People develop much more conviction when they, their ideas are theirs. They don't develop conviction when you tell them what to do. Mike, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I did want to ask before we let you go, I happen to notice that unlike a lot of VCs who are you know, coronavirus experts uh, on Twitter, you've only tweeted like three to six times a year since joining the platform. I just wondered why that is, if you think it's sort of overvalued or just too much noise on Twitter or what your, what your thoughts are. Connie, I hope I do more than three to six a year. I think you're you're not giving me credit here. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta be honest with you. I think I think I'm doing at least one a month. At least. <laughs> I love Twitter. It's one of my favorite information sources. I'm probably not as good at posting on Twitter because I thought I sort of come from the mentality of if I have something too intelligent to say, I will say it, and if I don't have anything too intelligent to say, I'll shut up. <laughs> Fair enough. Mike, thanks again. Really a pleasure to talk to you as always. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Connie. Really appreciate you guys having me on this. That's it for this week's episode. Like a lot of you, our kids are home this week and for several weeks because of the coronavirus so we're putting them to work. Today, we wanted to introduce you to one of our interns. Hi, I'm Theodore. I'm one of Connie's interns here at Strictly VC. <laughs> and how old are you, Theodore? 31. Stop <laughs> laughing! Well, as you can probably gather, we're not going to get much done for the next couple of weeks. So if there are any pressing stories out there, please let us know. Thanks, everyone. Mm -hmm.